0: Tearing Down Walls, a Sunshine Live podcast with your host Sylvia Cunningham.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Welcome to another episode of Tearing Down Walls on Sunshine Live, a show in partnership with WNHU at the University of New Haven in the United States. Every month I join you from Berlin for a transatlantic talk about the things that unite and divide us. It is one month after the German election, and three parties are hunkering down in formal coalition talks to form a government. Is change on the way? Now, young people in both Germany and the United States are demanding a shift from the status quo on climate change, housing, and drug policies. So what does progressive change look like in both places, and what can the two countries learn from each other? So far, recreational marijuana has been illegal in Germany, but it looks like a new government, most likely a coalition of the center-left Social Democrats, the Greens, and the business-friendly liberal Free Democrats, would support legalizing cannabis for recreational use. And that's something that 18 states in the U.S., plus Washington, D.C., has already done. So first, we go to Connecticut, the latest U.S. state to legalize cannabis for people 21 and older. And with me now is Mike Lawler, an associate professor of criminal justice at the University of New Haven, home to our partner station, WNHU. Hey, Mike, thanks for joining.
2: Thanks. It's great to be here.
1: So the law legalizing recreational marijuana in Connecticut came into effect in July of this year. What kind of repercussions did cannabis users face in Connecticut before this law was passed?
2: For as long as I can remember, the traditional penalty for possession of marijuana was a crime, right? It was a misdemeanor, meaning you could be incarcerated for up to one year for possession of less than four ounces of marijuana. And if it was more than four ounces, it was a felony where you could be punished by up to seven years. And if you were caught selling it or distributing it, the penalty was 15 years, the maximum penalty anyways.
1: And so now this law legalizing recreational use has been in place for a couple of months. And Connecticut, of course, had this benefit of watching more than a dozen other states go through this process and learn from those states missteps. What do you think Connecticut has maybe gotten right in this law?
2: I think it's most important to think of this, not just in Connecticut, but throughout the U.S., as a rethinking of our approach to drug policy, generally speaking, right? And marijuana was the easiest substance to talk about, you know, after alcohol, right? And so starting in the 1990s, there was a movement in our state to legalize possession of marijuana for medical purposes. Um, and even that took until the mid-2000s to become law. That allowed for the development of a industry in our state where medical marijuana was being produced commercially. And it's also important to keep in mind that even to the current day, it is a crime under federal law to possess or distribute marijuana. So although it's legal under our state's laws, it's still a crime under federal laws. Now, the federal prosecutors are not prosecuting these types of cases, but they could if they chose to. So it's a little bit of a a difficult explanation to make to people when they ask you, is it really legal or not? So it's kind of legal, but it's not really legal. So it started with medical marijuana. And then after that, the discussion began about why not just make it lawful altogether uh, with some restrictions. And so that's the bill that passed this year. Although it did take a few years to get even that bill passed because much of the controversy wasn't the philosophical question about should possession of marijuana be a crime or not. The battle was about how do you undo all of the old convictions that had taken place. And that is a very complicated problem to solve. And fortunately this year, uh, the legislature figured out a way to do that.
1: Maybe you can give us some insight there. I mean, it's well known that there's a disproportionate incarceration of people of color for drug offenses. What has happened retroactively to people who were previously fined or jailed?
2: Well, there's a mechanism in place now where people who've got these old convictions can basically apply to have the conviction erased. Uh, We also have a, a set of new laws that apply broadly to all crimes, to allow for the erasure of a record after the passage of time. And for misdemeanors, and many of these are misdemeanors, it could actually happen automatically, whether it's marijuana or breach of peace or some other relatively minor crime, after the passage of five years. And for felonies, it's a little bit longer. The victims have a some input in crimes that involve actual victims. but. Uh, Connecticut has gradually been moving in the direction of rethinking all of our criminal justice policies, and in particular, our drug policies. And it does go beyond cannabis, beyond marijuana. And uh, But so far, so good.
1: So, Mike, earlier you mentioned that there is this contradiction in the U.S. where marijuana is illegal on a federal level and yet legal, of course, on, on many state levels. There's also this nuance when it comes to college campuses. I mean, for example, marijuana is now legal in your state of Connecticut for people 21 and up. But how is this handled then on the campus of the University of New Haven, where you teach?
2: Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. I don't think the University of New Haven is unique. I'm pretty sure that all campuses abide by this. Uh, we treat it the same way as we do alcohol, right? And smoking cigarettes, generally speaking. You know, you can't do either one in any of our dormitories, regardless of how old you are. But if you get caught, you're going to be in, in trouble on the, uh, w- with the college authorities.
1: Right. And uh, of course, it's standard that schools and universities would have their own rules on their own campuses. But it feels like there there is this tricky gray area.
2: I, I mean, I think one of the goals would be... Why can't we manage uh, the use of cannabis in the same way we do the use of alcohol, right? I think it's a good parallel. I mean, alcohol abuse is a big problem in our country, right? And in fact, if you were trying to add up the carnage that comes from different substances, you know, alcohol by far and away would be leading in that respect. And that's lawful, right? I think many people have pointed out that it's actually easier to manage things if they're legal versus if they're being entirely conducted on the black market. And, um, you know, we have problems on our campus, like every campus, with other drugs as well. And, you know, there are students on campus who are reluctant to report an overdose, for example, afraid they're gonna get in trouble. And and so there's lots of protections built in for that kind of thing. In an ideal world, we would, as a matter of public policy, totally embrace a harm reduction approach to this problem, right? And I think that's the direction things are heading in. And you can see the step-by-step process One other thing that I should point out, you know, in the aftermath of the um, murder of George Floyd last year out in Minnesota, Connecticut, like a lot of states, did a big police reform initiative. And one of the provisions is that going forward, police cannot use the fact that they smelled marijuana when they stop a motor vehicle to uh, authorize a search of that car. Because it turned out a lot of police were, you know, pulling a car over, claiming they smelled marijuana, and then conducting a search of the car, which they would be allowed to do based on longstanding Supreme Court decisions. But we've now prohibited that in Connecticut. And when you're talking about racial disparities, you can see it very clearly in that narrow segment. The number of searches of motor vehicles of African-Americans who were pulled over is much, much, much higher than for white people who get stopped by the police. And so that's an incidence where the smell of marijuana, at least the claim of the smell of marijuana by a police officer was allowing for a racially disparate intervention, which led to lots of bad outcomes. So marijuana policy is much broader than is it legal versus is it not legal? And at least in Connecticut, we're trying to undo some of that damage.
1: Now, turning to Germany, where lawmakers could soon be considering a law to legalize cannabis for recreational use, you were a member of the Connecticut House of Representatives for 24 years. So if you could give German lawmakers advice on how to proceed in this, you know, at times very contentious debate, what advice would you have for them?
2: Well, the most important thing is figure out what your actual goal is, right? And then come up with strategies that help you to accomplish that goal, Uh, If your goal was to put as many black and brown people in prison as possible, then we did a great job for the last 40 years. If your goal is to have fewer people becoming addicted to drugs, uh, getting into accidents or doing self-harm because of drugs, then you might want to focus on some strategies that have actually been established elsewhere in Switzerland and Portugal, etc. They have some very innovative approaches to dealing with substance abuse, which tend to be way more uh, effective than what we see in the United States. I mean, Europe in generally, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time there. It seems the approach to drinking is a little bit different, right? I think the fact that young people are exposed to it at a slightly younger age than In the U.S. I mean, the drinking age used to be 18 in the U.S. Now it's 21. And many college presidents are saying it would be better if you put it back at 18 because at least then we could manage it. Right now we have to pretend as though it doesn't exist. If your goal is harm reduction, there are strategies you should pursue to to accomplish that. And nothing that we've done up until now seems to be uh, accomplishing that goal.
1: Mike Lawler is an associate professor of criminal justice at the University of New Haven. Thanks so much for your time.
2: Sure, it was a pleasure.
0: Tearing Down walls, a Sunshine Life podcast.
1: Now, we just heard the perspective of a professor and former lawmaker in Connecticut, the latest state in the U.S. to legalize recreational marijuana. Now we'll bring the conversation back to Germany with Rudiger Schmolke. He is a coordinator from Sonar Berlin, Safer Nightlife Berlin, which is an umbrella organization of various initiatives providing resources on drugs, safer sex, and other health issues. Welcome, Ru. Thank you for joining me.
3: Yeah. Hello.
1: With the current coalition talks that are happening here in Germany to form a new government, one thing it looks like the three parties of the center-left SPD, Environmentalist Greens, and pro-business FDP could potentially agree on is legalizing marijuana for recreational use. What do you think about that?
3: I'm, as a prevention worker, I'm not in favor of um, cannabis should be a kind of normal business and everybody, you know, can sell uh, cannabis in all kinds of forms and for everyone. And I think the more, let's say, European way would be a strong regulation but it should be possible to, for adults to obtain cannabis in a legal way, maybe with um, yeah harsh regulations, like you have to register before you can buy cannabis. That's in fact the proposal of the Green Party, so that advertising is forbidden, that certain forms like, well, you have uh, like sweets or so uh, that uh, contain cannabis um, wouldn't be possible to offer. But selling cannabis in a very restricted way with certified jobs for people that registered before in small amounts um, should be possible. And I would be, of course, in favor of this because uh, criminalizing people is uh, a very bad way of handling problems.
1: And a part of the Greens proposal, too, is knowing where the cannabis comes from, growing it locally...
3: Well, you know that the Netherlands is a neighboring country and they had a very progressive policy compared to other European states. But there's still the problem of the producing and wholesale of cannabis is uh, still illegal. And this causes a lot of problems um, that they try or for sure should avoid or try to avoid.
1: Now, this is still a contentious debate for example, there are doctors who worry about the effect on the brain development of users who are underage, or the German police union says they're concerned that there could be more traffic accidents. What do you say in response to these types of arguments?
3: I think a main uh, misunderstanding is that if a substance is problematic, then uh, it should be prohibited. And I think yeah, prohibiting um, substances is uh, less effective at the end. Also for users that smoke too much cannabis, for example, it doesn't help at all. And I think um, the discussion should be more about what will change if cannabis has another or new status.
1: Is there a state in the US you think Germany could look to or should model its policy on?
3: Um, The U.S. is less what we're looking uh, on, let's say, or it's not really a model uh, for Europe, I'd say. The American economy is very business-driven, let's say, or, you know, it's more liberal uh, whenever something is legal. It means that, you know, big business uh, is, you know, ahead. (laughs) And I think at least the, let's say, serious uh, proposals uh, from parties will not follow this kind of way, but they really are in favor of a strict regulation. I think we're more oriented to now Luxembourg is on the way to legalize uh, cannabis rather than Colorado, let's say, uh, where you have a lot of shops and they make a lot of advertising and you have all the tourists coming in and so on. This is really what they want to avoid.
1: Rudiger Schmolke works with the organization Sonar Berlin, Safer Nightlife Berlin. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks a lot.
0: Tearing Down Walls is a co production of Sunshine Life and college radio station WNHU, 88.7 FM, out of West Haven.
1: You're listening to Tearing Down Walls. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. On today's episode, we're looking at the way lawmakers in the US and Germany handle key issues and the kind of change activists are pushing for. With me now is American housing activist Thomas McGath. He's based here in Berlin and is a spokesperson for Expropriate Deutsche Wohnen & Co., a campaign to socialize apartments of the city's largest corporate landlords. Thomas, welcome, thanks for being here. Thanks for having
4: me, Sylvia. great to be here.
1: So let's go back a sec, because what started as this grassroots campaign has gained a ton of momentum, obviously, and attracted attention around the world. Take us briefly back to how it started and, and the real catalyst.
4: I think you have to kind of preface any conversation about our campaign in general with the fact that Berlin has had a very active and rebellious and robust kind of renters' politics and movements for the past 10 years or so, really got its start in an or tour with this protest hub that they set up in 2010 to actually protest Deutsche Wohnen, which is the largest private landlord in Berlin with 110,000 apartments and the really kind of de- deteriorating conditions um, and rising rents in their neighborhood where they were really facing quite a lot of displacement pressure and also discrimination in the housing market as well. Um, and Beyond that, you know, Berlin has also had subsequent referendums. In 2014, there was a referendum to stop the luxury construction of uh, housing on the Tempelhofer Field, which is the former um, airport of Berlin, which is now a kind of open nature sanctuary and park as well. And then there was another referendum in 2015, which really aims to massively reform the way that the city does housing policy and, and construction as well, not only with city-owned units, but privately in terms of land use, and also in terms of the proportion of social housing that had to be built as well. And our campaign really got started as the outcropping of these failures and successes as well. So there's this existential moment in Berlin that's really kind of dovetailed into this big movement that has been very successful, as we've seen at the polls. So almost 60% of voters voted yes in favor of the referendum for what I would say is a demand for, you know, radical and rapid change to the way that the city manages housing.
1: Right. And and the results of the referendum certainly sent a message, but it's not legally binding. The Berlin government is still being formed, but it looks like the Social Democrat, Franziska Giffey, who is more in the conservative camp of her party, will be the next mayor of Berlin. And she's not in favor of this initiative. She doesn't think it's the right way to tackle the housing crisis. But can the next Berlin government ignore it?
4: For the campaign it would be a scandal and really an undermining of democratic norms if they were to ignore such a large result when it comes to a referendum you know this is the will of the people and i think to ignore that would do a lot of damage to the way the democracy functions in the city and also in germany as well
1: some opponents of this initiative say that you know rising rents go hand in hand with what happens when a city grows and gets more popular it's something we've seen in new york and london so why should Berlin be spared of this trend? I mean, how do you convince skeptics that it's the appropriate step to turn back the clocks, in a sense, and have this do-over where the state takes back ownership of these apartments? I mean, there's a
4: few arguments there, and I think there's a few kind of ideological assumptions when it comes to housing markets that really kind of need to be dissected. So from my perspective, there is nothing natural about the way that cities manage housing, Uh in the more speculative and more finance dominated cities like London and New York as well. Um, there are plenty of other examples out there of cities that manage their housing markets much more fairly, much more humans rights-based. Helsinki, Finland is one example where the city itself builds around seven to 8,000 units a year and they have A law that is also housing first, which means that um, if you are unable to afford housing, the city will give you an apartment, no questions asked.
1: Let me pick up on that point real quickly, that Finland builds apartments, because that's something that's criticized, actually, about the expropriation initiative, that if Berlin were to spend tens of billions of euros buying back apartments, would that money not instead be better spent on building new apartments?
4: Sure. I mean, we don't say that Building is not necessary, but we we generally say that, uh, from my perspective, it has to be affordable housing and housing construction as well. if you look at what's been being built in large metropoles around the city you know the vast vast majority of it is not affordable but looking at LA for example you know they built 90,000 units in the past five years but 91 percent of these units were unaffordable for the average person. so uh, cities can be smart about this they don't have to surrender their cities to international capital and to speculators.
1: Thomas McGath is a Berlin-based housing activist. Thanks for your time today.
0: Thanks a lot Sylvia. Tearing Down Walls, our transatlantic show on sunshine life.
1: In this final part of the show, we're looking at climate change ahead of the big UN conference COP26, which kicks off this weekend in Glasgow. And US President Joe Biden and outgoing German Chancellor Angela Merkel will both be in attendance. And joining me to talk about what to look out for is Sven Egenter, the Editor-in-Chief and Executive Director of the Clean Energy Wire, or Clue, here in Berlin. Welcome, Sven. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And joining from Los Angeles is Liv Schroeder, the Fridays for Future U.S. Policy Coordinator. Welcome, Liv. Thanks for having me. So, Sven, this summit comes at kind of an odd time in German politics because Chancellor Merkel will be attending, but she's not actually leading the country anymore. And in this post-election period, as parties are in coalition talks to form the next government, Merkel has assumed this caretaker role. Nevertheless, she is known as being this advocate for climate protection on the global stage. What role is she expected to play at this conference? And what are the big hopes pegged to COP26? Clearly,
0: you know, making commitments for Germany will be difficult for her because, you know, she's now in a caretaker role and, you know, she cannot make, you know, a lot of promises that, you know, other governments then will have to keep. But as you rightly pointed out on an international stage, she has a lot of clout as, you know, one of the most experienced leaders. And I think her word and her sort of um, ambitions and, and intentions still carry some weight.
1: Live. There was this idea that when Joe Biden took office, there would be this recommitment to climate protection, that the U.S. would kind of get back on course in a sense. How do you think that this has panned out? Sure. I think it's been really interesting, right,
5: because Joe Biden ran on the notion that he was a climate president and largely the fact that he's in office has been attributed to young people, people of color, marginalized communities, people who are most affected by and who most want climate action are the people who put him in office. So we're currently seeing the play out with our $3.5 trillion reconciliation budget. And this is desperately needed. This could hit 50 percent of his energy goals, like electricity specifically. This is the largest U.S. climate infrastructure that could actually have a chance at meeting these targets that we so desperately need. Um, And we're seeing that it's being blocked by two Democratic senators. And we're trying to get them to realize that they're actively complicit in environmental destruction. If they're stopping this budget, this budget is the last chance for young people that we have. And especially with it being so close to COP, it feels like the US, which is a country with arguably the most responsibility in the world, given its history and current standing, is failing so dramatically at the moment.
1: Sven, can you put COP26 into the context of past global climate summits? Now that it's about six years after the Paris Agreement was decided at COP21, what are the expectations this year?
0: It comes at a very interesting point in time because of what Liv actually said, you know, the US is back at the table in an active positive role, whether it's enough or not is a different question. But in general, we are seeing a world and also thanks to the activities and and the drive from uh, Fridays for Future across the world and similar activities by young people and NGOs, climate action is not something on the fringes anymore. Now, why is this COP then important? Well, yes, it wraps up things um, that, that needed to be done uh, still since Paris. You know, the famous Paris rule book. How do we actually put the Paris Agreement into place? Um, there is the discussion about climate finance. How can you know richer countries support poorer countries? But the main question could well be, you know, is the dynamic in society... Um, now, much stronger than, you know, climate diplomacy usually takes into account when they try to figure out what they can uh, come up with at a COP. And and will we have the same sort of social and, 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 you know, economical dynamism, you know, behind climate action, which we are actually seeing um, emerge in many countries across the globe, the U.S. being one example, but, you know, we see the same thing in Europe with the Green Deal. Uh, with company pledges, with, uh, you know, cities pledging to go climate neutral.
1: And Liv, what for you is something very concretely that you hope comes out of the coming weeks at at COP26?
5: I think that international legally binding targets are, in my opinion, at least the way to go. I think we're seeing an uptick in the number of young people that are Quite willingly ready to sue their governments. We've seen the Giuliana case in the US. We've seen a multitude of new cases and pieces of like of legal action against governments. And I think that's huge, right? Like the concept of suing for climate and suing for environmental rights is something that has really only kind of grown in the past 10 years or so. And I think that, you know, if you have to sue your government because you can't breathe the air and you can't drink the water and you can't like exist. I think that that's pretty terrible and pretty knowing of the fact that we need to set some legally binding carbon emission targets right now.
0: I would just add that, you know, when it comes to expectation management to the COP, Liv is right that all the governments have to do more to fulfill these obligations, which they clearly signed up on on an international level. And the pressure has been, you know, quite significant from the Paris Agreement. But, you know, the Glasgow COP will not lead to a new sort of legally binding framework, because there would be nobody to police it, pretty simply. But what Liv's point is really important that, you know, more and more courts in the various countries, in the Netherlands, in Germany, the US, uh, in in many places, Austria, actually are looking now into, you know, these obligations. And obviously, the international agreements that their governments have signed play a significant role uh, on top with, you know, what's written in the constitutions and the scientific evidence.
1: Sven, in July, Germany and the U.S. announced the launch of an energy and climate partnership, and... It's been really interesting to watch over Chancellor Merkel's 16 years in office, her relationship with the U.S. presidents um, on climate change. I mean, first there was George W. Bush, who definitely did not act in the way she wanted on, on climate change, to Barack Obama, who was certainly more aligned with her goals, uh, to Donald Trump, who withdrew from the Paris Agreement, and and now to Joe Biden, who who recommitted to it and who you know, she hasn't had much overlap with, though, um, in their times in office. What is the core of of this climate partnership?
0: I mean, the last five, four years basically were about containment and trying to prevent the Trump government of spreading, you know, sort of like uh, their message across the globe and and diluting international efforts. And that is now a complete different story. And, And that energy partnership, if you want, is a sort of formal recognition of that. It's about cooperating on these goals. It's about a sort of mission statement, if you want. Yes, we want to make the move to climate neutrality a success. We want to support developing countries. We want to raise climate finance. We want to develop the technologies necessary. We want to act together. And these commitments do matter uh, on an international level, but also on a, a level between the countries. And they can develop their own dynamics over time.
1: Liv, in in terms of the transatlantic relationship, are you in contact with activist movements here in in Germany? Are are you learning from what works and doesn't work here? Or are you more focused locally or, you know, even nationally?
5: Uh, That's a great question. And I think that, you know, Fridays for Future is an international movement. And that I think is really a huge part of the power of the work is that we hadn't seen climate action or at least a show of desire for climate action on such a big scale before. Um, And we see that in Germany specifically, Fridays for Future Germany, Fridays for Future Berlin, they are incredible at pulling out all the stops. They have the big strikes. Uh, They had that huge global climate strike uh, right before a couple of days before the election, um, had 100,000 people at that one strike in Berlin. Absolutely incredible turnout. And comparatively in the U.S., uh, due to the poor mismanagement of COVID, we are still trying to work our way back up to those big strikes that we were having in 2018, 2019. But we are doing more policy work on the policy front. I think that, you know, the past four years, the Trump administration really just kind of put a stop to anything and everything. And as Sven said, it was entirely containment, trying to, you know, uphold the EPA regulations, trying to make sure that the damage was contained and minimized. And I think that Um, for us, there's a lot of kind of building back to do, um, specifically in the way that how people are represented. And we see in the US specifically that people who want climate action are not represented in our government, because our government actively chooses to continue fossil fuel subsidies, actively chooses to continue building pipeline infrastructure, actively chooses to completely ignore what's happening right now. So, you know, the strike's are incredible. Germany is killing the game. We wish we could have the strikes like them, but the U.S. has some real work to do right now, and we're trying to trying to focus on that. Sven,
1: did you have something to add there?
0: I mean, I remember when we looked to the United States with the big climate marches before uh, the COP in Paris uh, in 2015, and I, I think you know that. I think there's a great ping pong game uh, going on between you know the the activists uh, across continents, which is you know great in, in its effect.
1: Liv, you are part of the U.S. Youth Advisory Council for the United Nations Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development. Can you share a little bit about what's driving you and, and share some of your passion?
5: I think that when we consider climate action on the international scale, which is really the scale on which it needs to happen, we fail to consider how big a role the oceans play in minimizing climate risk minimizing climate harm mitigating disaster the oceans control 70% of the global carbon cycle and regulate 50% of the air we breathe and they're effectively along with the amazon rainforest the world's greatest carbon sink so i think it's it's an area that is incredibly important to act on but you know if we have countries that are failing to hit their own climate targets how can we expect people to internationally cooperate over a piece of the earth that they don't have any legal ownership of. I think that that is one of the biggest roads to climate justice. I mean, if you look at the sheer amount of people that, you know, are dependent on the ocean every day, billions of people, a third of the world, two thirds of the world gets their like main protein, their meal, their income, their tourism dollars for each nation is largely dependent on the oceans. Um, And we've seen significant decline there, right? And I think that that's that's an area that's underrepresented, which is why this uh, opportunity is so cool and why the UN Ocean Decade is such an
1: incredible time and why we need it now. Liv Schroeder is the U.S. Policy Coordinator for Fridays for Future, and Sven Egenter is the Editor-in-Chief and Executive Director for the Clean Energy Wire in Berlin. Thank you so much to both of you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you, Sylvia.
1: And thanks to everybody for tuning into the fifth edition of Tearing Down Walls. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. This show was produced and edited by me and Monica Muller Kroll. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.